Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming back after our little hiatus. This week, I'm really excited because I have a special guest lined up. This man, this gentleman, I've met a few years back, and I've had the privilege to work with him in the last couple of years. And he is one of the hardest working men that I know, uh, hardest working person I know in the museum arena. And I'm going to give him a chance to sort of talk about what he does. So if you can help me welcome Mr. Ben Dicko from the Columbia Memorial Space Center. Yay! Hi, Ben. Hey, T. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. And so if you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself to our guests, how you got to become the executive director at the Columbia Memorial Space Center down in Downey. Sure. Um, yeah, no problem. So... Yes, my name is Ben Dicko. I am the president and executive director of the Columbia Memorial Space Center. We are a space museum and hands-on STEM learning center located on the site where a former NASA facility where all the Apollo spacecraft that went to the moon were designed and built and all the space shuttles. And we serve as the official memorial to the Columbia Space Shuttle. We've been open since about 2009 and doing, you know, we see about 100,000 visitors a year. We have various educational programs from, you know, field trip programs, things that happen within our building, uh, weekly workshops. We do a ton of outreach programs. Uh, we coordinate large events and festivals like the City of STEM. We're pretty much across the board, you know, science museum for all intents and purposes with this great history of innovation and, you know, engineering and you know, the space program along with it. I joined the Space Center on September 1st of 2014, actually. I've been working in STEM education, mostly in science museums for almost my entire career, which started well over 20 years ago now. (laughs) Uh, um, When you were four, right, Ben? Yeah, right, right, (laughs) of course. But I started in Chicago at the Museum of Science and Industry there and really fell in love with the field and just kind of that followed me to LA and I worked at the California Science Center for a while and I've done work with the National Science Foundation in DC and yeah a bunch of different things I was on the I was an exhibit I was the creative director at a museum and exhibit design firm in LA for a number of years also so I was on the the more for-profit side of, of STEM education for a while too. So if you wouldn't mind tell us a little bit about what we would see if we step into the Columbia Memorial Space Center. Sure. So the first thing is, because the visitor experience starts before you even walk through the door. So when you get onto our campus, you'll see a, uh, a boilerplate Apollo capsule out in front. It's a, it's a real capsule that was built for the space program. It didn't hold astronauts, but it was a test object that went into um, sort of the upper atmosphere to t- test out components on the, the Apollo spacecraft back in the 60s. And then you'd also see our building, which is a gleaming stainless steel sort of curved to linear three-story building that is probably one of the most in- interesting pieces of architecture in southeast LA I have to say and you walk through the door and you would see some large gathering spaces so some hands-on exhibits we have a, a memorial wall to the space shuttle Columbia which was the very first space shuttle that was ever launched in 1981 and it uh, unfortunately broke up when it was re-entering the Earth's atmosphere in uh, 2003. So right around the time that that disaster happened was when our project, the project of this building the Space Center got started, so that's how we became the memorial to the shuttle. But yeah, you would see uh, hands-on exhibits, you would see staff doing 
sort of hands-on science demonstrations. We have a huge media wall that we do special talks with uh, astronauts and former, you know, engineers and other dignitaries. We have a gift shop. We have a uh, an early childhood area, so we actually have this great program with Caltech and their early childhood program, um, where they helped us develop and design STEM activities for zero to four year olds. So we have a space upstairs that that's focused on on that age group. We have some wonderful artifacts from the space program. Our site actually dates back to the late 20s and aircraft manufacturing. So we have this 70 year history of airplane and space. So we bring out objects and things. Then we also have two very special uh, environments within the Space Center. One is the robotics lab. It is LA's only public robotics lab. It's a place where anyone can come in and build and program a robot. We use the Lego Mindstorms platform for that. But, you know, we do, with, we use that space all the time. We use it for, you know, special field trips, for special programs, and then, again, sort of this the open public space for people to play around with robots. And then upstairs, we also have Challenger Learning Center. That is one of 40 Challenger Centers that are around the world. Ours is the only one in Southern California. And it's an immersive simulator of mission control and a spacecraft. And so we take groups uh, of kids or adults on two-hour missions to the moon or Mars, and they play roles that you would find in mission control or as astronauts on a, on a flight to the moon or Mars. So they go through, they follow NASA mission manuals, and they go through the whole sort of uh, launch the splashdown type of mission. The launch sequence is really fun, and then they get into space, and they're doing a bunch of science activities, either in moon or Earth orbit. They send some probes out, and then they head back to Earth. So uh, it's a great, super great experience. Again, it's open, you know, it's, it's open to anyone who wants to sign up for that program. And yeah, it's great. And then we have a wonderful sort of surrounding area. You know, we're, we're part of a public park, so it's, uh, it's really nice. And then, and then I really have to say this, though, that the Space Center is not just the building. We have put a real premium on trying to be a 21st century museum. So we spend at least as much time worrying about what we do outside of our building is what we do inside. So we do a ton of outreach programs. We have a big initiative to develop uh, science clubs throughout LA. So these would be clubs that do hands-on science with groups of kids, wherever kids happen to be, and that's affiliated with the, with the uh, Space Center. And we would, you know, that entire sort of diaspora of people who take part in our programs that might not even be on our facility site, we count them all as visitors because because um, you can have a museum experience, a great hands-on science exhibit wherever you are, or hands-on science experience wherever you are. For example, you have a really good uh, girls in STEM club, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's one of our that's one of our premier examples. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, and this started about four years ago, I guess. We have a home club, and then we have some satellite clubs, and these are basically it's uh, young women, third grade through high school, who are really into STEM. We provide activities, facilitated things, non-facilitated things. A place speakers that these girls can get together they get together every other saturday throughout the year and they get together at the space center or wherever they happen to be and they are uh, yeah do all kinds of great stem stuff and the beauty of this of this program is that the girls are the ones who sort of lead the thing so 
uh, we have a couple of staff who are the facilitators for this program, and the girls kind of get together. They decide what they want to investigate or what part of STEM that they're interested in or what kind of speaker they want. And then our staff, you know, their job is to kind of go out and make that thing happen, you know, make that happen. And then the girls work on projects, whatever they want. We've had some really awesome programs with JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, the NASA lab here in Southern California. A couple of years ago, our girls were working with the Juno spacecraft. So that's oh. the spacecraft that's orbiting Jupiter right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the girls were able to download data from a camera that's on the Juno spacecraft. And the girls were able to process that image data and turn it into pictures that then they were able to send back to JPL um, for analysis or, or something. And then this past summer, they worked with the... I'm going to get this wrong. It's called Gavert, and I th- think it's the it's the Greater Apple Valley something. I don't know. Basically, <laughs> it's a huge radio telescope out in the desert that NASA owns, and they had our girls and STEM girls. They gave our girls and STEM girls the the ability to remotely point that huge radio telescope at certain points in the universe and take radio telescope data and our girls analyze that data to look for uh, they were working with the SETI program actually so that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence program that NASA runs so our young women were trained by JPL engineers on how to analyze the radio telescope data and what to look for for anomalies or signals that would be interesting for researchers to look at so they did that all last summer so a lot of you know really hands-on real science stuff also some great they do their own uh, science fair so just a lot of a lot of fun things wow that that is really amazing so i know when i and, my... uh, just uh, oh sorry i wanted to say that girls in stem club that's free to the girls who participate we have about 80 girls active on site and about 100 girls on a sort of remotely so it's a it, it's a it's a program that has a waiting list people want to get into it Oh wow! Anyway, sorry. Oh no problem. No, I was just gonna say I I I love all the things that's going on there because when I bring my kids there, they they love all the exhibits and once once they get older, I definitely want to take them into the robotics lab because who doesn't like cool. playing with Lego, right? Exactly, exactly. And and definitely the CLC is an experience that you guys will want to really experience for yourself because it's a simulation of a mission. Uh, both mm-hmm. you can experience it on the ground as well as what it's sort of like in in the shuttle area and the kids that have experienced it they loved it and so definitely when you have a chance once everything's lifted definitely mm-hmm. make sure you and your family go check it out now i i do want to go back because i never knew that we actually had production or factories that were creating all these parts and what amazes me is some of the artifacts that you see when you walk in. One of my favorite one recently that I heard you talk about was the the locking mechanisms for the module, the lunar landing module. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Uh, so it's uh, it's called the docking probe. Docking probe. Um, so right. if you so it, if you can picture the sort of gumdrop shape of an Apollo capsule, and at the the top, the tip, there is this. 
in, in a lot of pictures you see this thing. It's this little, it's this device that, that creates the sort of pointy tip of the Apollo capsule that is, it's about three or four sort of interlocking, interlocking uh, like struts. So, you know, long pieces of metal kind of thing. And what this thing did, it was on the top of the capsule and it was the thing that locked the Apollo command module where the astronauts were to the the Apollo lunar module, the thing that actually the astronauts took down to the surface of the of the moon. And it's very, I mean, it's a complicated piece of machinery, but it's also a very simple and it's very analog. It's not automated. This thing was, you know, the astronauts had to sort of crank some cranks and, you know, you know, get these two spacecraft to lock together in, you know, in deep space, basically. But it's a really sort of elegant solution. Yeah, we've got one of the very last ones in existence because all the ones that were produced that went into space were all jettisoned before the astronauts came back. They were just kind of thrown away in, in orbit. Whenever you send something to space, you always build the same thing or have another copy of the same thing on Earth because if something goes wrong in space, at least you'll be able to be, you know, kind of working with real hardware here on Earth. So this was one of the copies that was left. And yeah, like you said, all that was designed and built right here or right on our site, certainly back in the Apollo era through the space shuttle at the time when we were producing the spacecraft. The facility was twice the size of Disneyland. It had like its own fire department. It's it's crazy. I mean, it was just a huge amount. 35,000 people at one time worked on our, on our facility. Just a ton of people trying to get people to the moon <laughs> and beyond. Yeah, I, I love going through and seeing all the artifacts, all the history. And if you're lucky enough, sometimes you get to see some of the people that actually worked on yeah. some of the spacecraft, uh, which which brings us to the next point. So for, for, for those of you that are history buffs or science buffs or you have kids that are interested in this kind of stuff, this is definitely a place you don't want to miss. And it's right here in our backyard in yeah. L.A., However, obviously, with everything that's going on, this has affected every industry, and museums have been very hardly uh, has been impacted very difficultly. So, Ben, can you tell us a little bit how this has impacted you, and how you uh, and the center have reacted and changed certain things? Sure, sure. So, as of this recording, we are closed to the public. We closed to the public on March thirteenth, I believe pretty much the day that i think the day after disneyland closed we closed and, and so did almost all the other museums in town so you know our identity has been it's a hands-on place for community to gather who love science and love history and things like that so obviously community gathering spaces and hands-on are highly impacted by the current pandemic <laughs> so again so we're closed to the public all of our staff has been working uh, remotely designing basically what we did was we pivoted almost overnight to trying to translate what we do to an online virtual experience. You know, we know that we can't do a one-to-one -one translation, basically. So uh, as much as we're, we're not just trying to do like, hey, let's just take video of what of the museum and have people look at it online. We're trying to make these the experiences that we're providing online compelling for a virtual audience. So that means that we're taking some of our old curriculum and Re redesigning it for online use for you know hands-on science that can be done in your home and that doesn't need a lot of specialized materials or if it does we'll tell you how to get them you know we are doing some virtual walkthroughs of the center but with a guide and sort of a way that we can kind of really use video to help accentuate some of the stories that we want to 
want to uh, talk about. But yeah, right now we've been really doing a ton of work on sort of virtual learning and virtual teaching because we know that that's going to be sort of the primary way that people interact foreseeable future at least especially with you know summer camps are probably going to be all virtual this summer and school is going to be highly impacted um, with a lot of virtual learning even even next school year so yeah so we're doing that but then you know we're starting to think of how what will we look like once we open up again and once the public is able to go to places like ours how will we how will we do that so obviously you know safety is number one safety of staff and and our visitors so we're trying to think about you know what makes a safe place and what the people need and also thinking about you know what so, so if we're a hands-on museum but you can't be hands-on or if we're a museum that you know that encourages people to gather together and work in groups but that's not that's sort of somewhat frowned upon how can we still not be a boring dusty old museum where there's no interactivity and there's nothing's fun about it it's just kind of you're just kind of looking at objects on the wall or something like that how do we not do that but at the same time keep the safety requirements in place so we're looking at a different a couple of different models including maybe just a full everybody who comes in gets a guided tour or you know every small group maybe like groups of 10 get like concierge service we're looking at a bunch of stuff right now you, you talk a lot about hands-on what mm-hmm. what is it that that changed the museum experience because i remember back yeah. in my elementary school when we went to museum to me it was a boring experience because it was just like sure. you said staring at a lot of walls what what changed that so a couple things i'm glad you asked this because it is i do have to say that this covid19 time right now is another existential inflection point for the museum world and i'll answer your question in a minute but just to explain what i mean by that is that the museum world across the board whether you're an art museum or natural history or science or whatever the wave for the past 30 or more years has been interactive hands-on engaging audiences and building community and being responsive and relevant to communities and making sure that everybody's story is being told in a museum so a lot of that is being called into question right now because of because of the fact that especially the interactivity part is what do we do? I've been on some national museum CEO calls lately, and people are like, "Holy crap, we have done nothing but you know market ourselves as a hands-on experience for 30 years, and now that's like exactly what we cannot do. <laughs> <laughs> how does that change who we are and stuff like that?" So, remind me to get back to how does that change who we are question because I think. There are some very interesting, just, I mean, we've only, you know, it's been like six weeks or so. The community is starting to think about what that what that next step means. But to kind of go into history, the museum, kind of as we know it, kind of grew up in the early 19th century, for the most part. And for 100 years or more, you get a bunch of curators, they find these objects wherever they are, and they put them on display in these really large, sort of big buildings that are imposing and have huge gallery spaces and stuff like that. And this goes for art or and you as an audience member, you kind of go in reverence to these spaces. And there is a power to see real objects, right? I mean, there is a power to just seeing, you can't really interact with a dinosaur bone, but when you see it on display, you're kind of like, holy crap, that's a, that's a dinosaur, like that's a big deal. But that was like the whole model for, for years and years. And then in the early 20th century, um, a museum was built, and so you know, so also that's paralleling this, right, is the industrial revolution and sort of huge advances in science. So then in the early 20th century in Germany, 
a museum pops up called the Deutsches Museum, which is the first real museum that deals with current science and technology, at least at the time. I think it was 1906 or something like that, or maybe even maybe 1916. It comes out and it's like, holy, you know, wow, there are, you know, these new things called airplanes there and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, you know, the automobile and, and it, and there was a little bit of an element of sort of, of the public actually doing stuff so they could, they could press a button or they could see a demonstration or something like that. There was a guy, actually the CEO of Sears, a robot company based in Chicago. He went out to visit Germany, saw this museum, came back to, to Chicago and said, the U.S. needs this kind of thing. So he helped found the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, which really was, to me, and I know the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia will take issue with this, but I'm going to put my flag, my flag in the sand and say that I think MSI Chicago was probably the first real, like, hands-on museum in the sense that it was grown and opened with this sort of hands-on immersive experience um, ethos built in. The Franklin's been around for a long time, but they didn't, they were started kind of as like a regular museum. Anyway, I'm sure I'm going to get some Franklin's two folks <laughs> yelling at me. But anyway, so MSI Chicago and others starts doing this thing where they're putting real science on display. You're going into these really sort of immersive exhibit environments msi uh, msi chicago to this day still has its original when when the museum opened in 1933 it had a full it has a full-size coal mine inside of the museum Whoa. now the museum of science industry in chicago is an exception it's a million square feet of exhibit space it's the largest museum under one roof in the western hemisphere so it's it, it, it's a huge space, but it's got a coal mine, and, you know, because coal mining, especially in, in Illinois, uh, is a big deal, or was, and that you can still visit that exhibit today when you go there. But, so you have this sort of exhibit, just, you know, here's a real, like, the real mechanics of a coal mine, and you get in the, you get in the elevator, and you actually go down underground to see, and coal mine experience and stuff. So that, plus there were push-button exhibits, and they had this crazy Tesla coil demonstration that would vaporize a 2x4, and like the science, like now when you think of Science Museum, it is sort of the gold standard of kind of where, where it all came from. And sort of the ethos of that, in some ways, was this idea that, you know, all these advancements of science and technology and engineering in the early 20th century were happening to people without a lot of like explanation of what it what it was or a lot of relevance to people right so you you know think about you know if you're in the 1920s or even yeah whatever and you uh, Lindbergh is crossing the Atlantic and new um, electric appliances are coming out like every day and stuff like that it's it can be a little disconcerting to the average person that you know holy crap you know there's Technology is taking over, you know, movies like Metropolis, you know, explore these ideas of like the, the technocratic future and all that kind of stuff. So, so the idea of, of the hands-on museum was to bring science and technology to the masses in a way that everybody could understand. That was honoring the fact that everybody should have access to an understanding of science and technology, that there should be, a, that we need sort of a modicum of science literacy and that a bunch of people, a bunch of eggheads, intellectuals telling people what what they should know, is probably not the right way to do it. That we have to let people interact with science, have a personal connection to it, and feel comfortable with all of the stuff that's going on. So that, that works. And But usually what that is, is a lot of, or what it had been then, was a lot of push-button kind of stuff, right? That was interactive. 
Then in the late 60s in San Francisco, the Exploratorium is founded in, or opens in 1969. And it is, it takes the idea of interactivity to, to the 11th level, right? So it's, it, this is a museum of phenomena and experience where you aren't just pushing buttons to interact with science. You're actually like rolling up your sleeves and like interacting with phenomena. So it's not so much that you would see two magnets come together in behind a display case or something like that. This is, you're manipulating these magnets to, to investigate for yourself about magnetism and uh, electrostatic forces and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it really becomes this very hands-on, very sort of personal meaning-making experience. And it sort of lays the groundwork of what I think is sort of the science education, good science education is all about, which is like an inquiry method, right? So you come in, you present people with these really cool, interesting things that are going to get questions in their heads going, and then you give them tools to be able to investigate their questions and go through a scientific process to come up with answers that, that mean something to them. It's a constructivist way of, of sort of encountering science. So anyway, that's Exploratorium. Almost overnight, that model you know, takes over the museum world, I think, and at least the science museum world. And it really has led to what I, to what I think is this explosion of science museums that are putting a premium on interactivity. Even if they were an old object-based museum, there's always... You know, nowadays, there's always some sort of interactive element to whatever happens, whether it's somebody on the floor doing a, doing a demonstration or doing a, like a cart experience or trying to do more than just sort of display something. Yeah, so that's kind of kind of got us to where we are today. And I think what, what museums have been doing for probably the past five to ten years has been really focusing on expanding our audience in the sense of like a lot of science has been very from one cultural perspective and so museums have been learning that wait a minute we are we are community anchors and if we're community anchors and if we're trying to produce if we're trying to inspire understanding in every member of our community we also have to speak to every member of our community so we have to be able to honor like everybody's experience and and what everybody brings to the table it's not just from one perspective so so that's been really great so now here we are we've gone through 100 maybe almost 100 years of like perfecting the interactiveness and stuff like that and now we can't have people at least in the short term touch things or work you know build legos or something like that without sort of disinfecting everything immediately after somebody leaves so so consequently i think what science museums have been really great at has been this idea of connecting people where they're at from whatever perspective they're at or whatever community they come from, connecting them to the beauty and wonder of science and looking at science education as a social experience in the sense that it's something that's not just a purely academic. It's something that can elicit these really great emotions of wonder and accomplishment and self-confidence and teamwork and things like that. We've been really good at through these big tools called exhibits and through our hands-on programs. If we can boil the, down the essence of that and then translate that into maybe a digital platform or something like that, I think you know that's kind of sort of a, a new evolution that's being pushed by this pandemic stuff. 
that was a really long answer, but I I like I like my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can totally tell the passion. And, and I got to be honest with you folks, I, I've heard Ben tell the story many times and I love the story and I, and I, that's why I really wanted him to share that with you because it, it's so interesting to see uh, what history has done in terms of at least the, the growth of the science museums and so forth. And Columbia, one of the reasons I love working with Ben is that Columbia really embodies uh, – in fact, the, the mission statement at Columbia Memorial Space Center is – to uh, you say Ben ignite a, ignite a community of creative and critical thinkers like yes we we consciously didn't put science or space or anything like that into right. our into our mission statement because um, what 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 science or stem or whatever is is this fusing of the of people's capacity for creative and everybody's capacity for creative and critical thinking and our job is sort of a public space is to get groups of people or people or community whether it's virtually or in person fired up and supported in their sort of creative and critical thinking so yeah so it kind of goes back to what i was saying which is like how do we boil down these things to to what is what we're really doing and what we're really trying to do and then just it's just a different tool at the end of the day it, yeah whether it's online or whether it's in person or whether it's an outreach experience or or a book or whatever and like I said, Ben is great because they have activities year-round. One of the biggest ones that I'm sure uh, we'll need to make some adjustments is the Rocket Fever. Yeah, yeah. As well as City of STEM, which uh, I'm always looking forward to. What What are the things that you think will be happening for the City of STEM? Because usually it's the first Saturday of April. Obviously, we've right. been postponing it. Where do you see City of STEM going in the future? Well, I think in the in the short term, it's going to go online. Um, so we, so City of STEM, you know, the idea of that is how do you how do we take our mission to ignite a community of creative and critical think, thinkers, and then leverage all of these wonderful STEM out of school time STEM resources in LA. So we have tons of science exhibit uh, science museums in Southern California. We have tons of nonprofit STEM you know organizations working. We have tons of of clubs like YMCA's that are doing you know STEM where kids gather. How do we bring all of these groups together and all these resources together for one to really sort of for for one purpose, which is you know to sort of surround people by STEM or surround the public with STEM and, and get them get the public to know all that's out there. So right away we modified the city of STEM site to include um, uh, an ever growing list of all of the online resources that pe that our partners are offering. So you can go to the City of STEM site and, and access activities from the Natural History Museum or from Shared Science down in Long Beach or some of the libraries in town or wherever. We've got we've about 120 plus partners in City of STEM, so we're asking them all if they have online stuff to sort of put it in this one place in City of STEM. But then another big part of City of STEM that's really important is sort of the connectivity to these resources. So the big City of STEM day, the first Saturday in April, we'd have 10,000 people interacting with all those partner institutions outside. Well, we can't do that. So we're looking into how do we have a series of sort of virtual events that happen probably in the fall that get all of those 120 partners involved to show off what they're doing and to let people kind of come in when they want to, but all online. Right now we're thinking about maybe the first iteration of this is sort of a how do you grow a STEM kid 
you know, and then all of our partners who have who can speak to that would be on this sort of schedule of the day. So it'd be the first virtual City of STEM festival day around that theme. And then we might do another theme, or we might look at just the the edu- the uh, nature education institutions around town, or something like that. So, so yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of possibility with that. And then I think that with the collective energy that City of STEM has been able to harness through all of the great work of the of the, the partner institutions, I think that this current crisis is forcing us all to kind of think outside of the box. And I think there'll be ways that we can leverage these partnerships to the opportunities that I don't even know about right now. <laughs> uh, we sort of jumped into the city of STEM. Would you mind sort of going back and sort of explaining uh, what, it is. What, what it is and who some of the partners in city of STEM sure. and how somebody, if they want to get involved, how they could still get involved? Yeah, of course. So city of STEM is for all intents and purposes, LA's science festival. It is the idea of City of STEM is that for our, our mission is that everybody in the LA area can feel surrounded by STEM, can feel like they know about and have access to the STEM resources around them, and that everybody in the LA region feels like they're part of the ongoing STEM story of LA. And what I mean by that is that our site's a great example, right? So our on our site, NASA built the spaceships that went to the moon. That's an L.A. or Southern California story as much as it is a NASA story or a national story. So we want to make sure that everybody in the L.A. region understands that there is awesome, groundbreaking, historic STEM activity happening every day in our in our region. So we want to make sure everybody knows that they're a part of that, too. So anyway, so that's sort of the, that's the mission of City of STEM. What it kind of looks like or has looked like for the past few years is that we take over the month of April and we... We have about 100, like I said, about 120 different STEM partners from industry groups like SpaceX to the mayor's office in Los Angeles to Caltech to the museum community like Natural History or Heal the Bay or somebody like that. And all of these groups get together and for one month we curate a calendar of activities, of STEM activities throughout the month of April. So I think last year we had about 130 STEM activities happening every single day of the month of April from one or multiple of the partner organizations. We also then do the big festival day, which is the first Saturday of the month of April, which kicks off the whole thing in that, again, last year we had, you know, over 100 STEM organizations in the park, in the public park that is around the Space Center. And we had about 10,000 people show up. And we had Bill Nye, the science guy, is the the Mm -hmm. keynote. He kind of kicked everything off in the morning. And we have not just... You, you can you can visit the booths of all of our partner organizations, but there's also science bands that play and food trucks and all kinds of fun stuff and and a, a series of panel discussions about interesting topics and stuff like that. So so yeah, there's that. And then obviously, City of STEM also lives online as just sort of like an events calendar for the STEM community. And, and Ben had mentioned this before, but I want to reiterate for our audience, you can actually go online to cityofstem.org and yep. uh, check out the calendar. They're still updating the calendar on the things that are happening online right now. So for those parents, for the educators who are looking for activities to do, go to cityofstem.org backslash STEM at home. And mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of activities and videos and uh, all sorts of things that you can check out. So, mm-hmm. so don't miss that. That's right. Don't miss it. 
and also kind of talking about the calendar like like you said our calendar was always populated by live events <laughs> but now that nobody's doing live events we're populating it with virtual events because we've seen a lot of our partners are doing have changed turn their virtual or their live stuff into virtual so if you want to see a lecture from somebody at the aquarium of the pacific online we'll have a link to it on our calendar and I'll make sure to put all the social media handles for the center on my webpage as well. So you guys make sure to subscribe and like and follow them so that you will always be up to date with what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, ben, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, any last yeah, you messages it. you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, if it wouldn't be, yeah. If, besides all the practical information like the Space Center when it's open, <laughs> it's open Tuesday through Saturday, uh, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., blah, blah, blah. But be on the lookout for our, our virtual summer camp launching in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, those of you who may be listening to this, who are parents or educators, who your job is to kind of worry about your kids' education and stuff, I just want to plug an entire sort of ecosystem of education that's out there. So the museums, these sort of nonprofit institutions, all of the groups that are doing STEM education outside of the classroom, they're part of this sort of sector of education called informal science education, or ISE. And it is a huge force in what drives kids and adults to love science, engineering, technology, and math. In fact, in some studies, it is the number one indicator for having a STEM career. School is great, and it's school is great for getting sort of deep into a subject or something like that, but the, the informal education realm is really, really good at inspiring, especially young people, to get into science and into in, for a lifelong love and maybe even a career in science. So it doesn't have to be the, the Space Center, but go to the science museums, sign up for the, the science enrichment programs at the library or whatever, all, there's this wonderful, wonderful, very hands-on, very learner-directed type of education that happens outside of the classroom. So yeah, and especially now, with there are no classrooms right now, <laughs> all of these groups are doing stuff online and still sort of continuing. So, so please support them. They are very important to the educational life of your kids and yourselves. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Yeah. Ben. Hopefully, in the future, we can have you come back and give some more historical stories. I, I love hearing about those and, and maybe hear about some of the new adaptations the center is going through. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let me just say, we haven't figured everything out yet, right? It's, right? We're only a few weeks into this thing. So, yeah, I'd be happy to come back and tell you what failures we've made and, and what small successes we've made. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you got it. Have a good day. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was our guest speaker, Mr. Ben Dicko, with the Columbia Memorial Space Center. Due to the length of today's episode, we will not be having a community education section. However, if you're interested in featuring your business or organization in that, please contact us. See you next week.